Before we get to our text for this morning, I'm Joel, by the way, um, executive pastor here and part of our preaching team. Um, Good morning to everyone on Zoom. Thank you for joining us that way. Um, I want to start, like, I, I like to, I, I like to start this way frequently when I, when I uh, speak. I want to start with a question, and I want to ask a question that will hopefully provoke some thinking and reaction and reflection on your part, and my question is pretty simple. My question is, what is it that makes you outraged? <laughs> I heard a nervous giggle from over here. Uh, what is it that makes you outraged? And I, I don't mean just, like, frustrated, or I don't mean what it irritates you, but, like, what... What provokes that, that welling up of, a, of righteous outrage in you? I think we probably all have it. Uh, it could be something as benign or simple as sports. Um, I'm a lifelong Cleveland sports fan, <laughs> uh, Cleveland Browns, Cleveland Indians, and so I've had plenty of outrage uh, due to that. Um, but it could be something more serious. I think a lot of us have more serious things, things like politics, uh, social causes, um, things that you see that family members or friends post on social media. Maybe those are uh, sources of outrage for you. But I want to start here. I just want you to think about what are those things. Um, and then on a deeper level, what I'm, hoping we'll, what I'm hoping to engage with a little bit this morning is the deeper question under that is why those things? Why is it those things that outrage you? Like what is it about those specific things and why not something else? If you're having a hard time thinking of something, and you're married, maybe ask your spouse. Um, they might be a helpful source of information on that front. Um, also, I would love to see triads explore this together. I think this is a great thing for triads to bring to each other. Like, what, what outrages us? Because I want to suggest, starting out here, I want to suggest that something that outrages you, especially if it easily outrages you, repeatedly gets you outraged, it's likely connected to some deeply held value you have, or maybe a deeply held sense of purpose that you hold on to that you find your purpose in this world connected to that thing in some way. And when you feel that thing is threatened, that's probably what provokes this, this outrage on some level. I think that that's probably part of what's going on. The reason I'm starting here, I want, and whatever comes up for you, maybe shelve it, put it in the back of your mind as we look through this story. I'm starting here because a really important part of our story that we're going to look at this morning is an outraged crowd of religious people. Um, so I, th- it's going to connect. I think that even though we can look at these stories and think they feel so historically and culturally distant to us, I think that we can connect with them in a real way. Um, so we're going to look at Acts chapter 18. Go ahead and flip to it uh, or go to it on your, on your phone or whatever, however you're going to look at it. Um, really quick word of context here. We're in Acts, which is the story broadly of the earliest Jesus communities in the Greco-Roman Mediterranean world. It's the story of how they got started and how they stayed committed to Jesus in the midst of the Roman Empire. Um, And in the book of Acts, as Acts kind of moves around in its history, it focuses on different characters. um, And we're in the section of the book that is focusing on a well-known character named Paul. A lot of people have heard of Paul. A lot of people know of him in some way, shape, or form. He's very influential um, in so many ways. He wrote a lot of what we have as the New Testament. Um, But we're focusing on, we're going to zoom in on him in chapter 18. And as we zoom in on him, he's still alone from his previous travels. And the reason he's alone, this is important. The reason he's alone is because he's been repeatedly driven out of towns because he's outraged people in all these towns. Rob's sermon from two weeks ago tracked a little bit of this story. He got chased out of not one, but two synagogues in a row. And the reason he's alone is because he left and he left his traveling partners behind to kind of hopefully take care of things. Presumably that indicates that Paul is the provocateur. The towns just wanted him out. (laughs) His friends could stay, but he needed to leave. So he's alone. He's still traveling. Um, And yet... 
even though he keeps going into this pattern of speaking in outraging crowds, and he's alone because of it, he still keeps doing it. He still keeps preaching and proclaiming and talking about Jesus in the synagogues in every town he goes to. And so, Chris, go ahead and bring up, uh, Chris Gage is running our slides. Go ahead and bring up the map. I think it should be the next slide. He, I, I find this helpful to have a little bit of a visual orientation to the geography of the story. And so Danny's sermon last week took place in Athens, very, very well-known city in Greece. Uh, Paul has traveled now to Corinth. So this is where he is. I'm going to leave this up here as I speak about the story, um, if that helps you kind of orient where, where, where we're at. Um, he has traveled through Macedonia and moved south and has gone from Athens to Corinth. Corinth, really quickly, this is the setting of the story we're going to look at. Uh, really what we're going to look at is the birth of the community, the Christian community in Corinth, which is where we get our letters to the Corinthians, which is another important part of the New Testament. But Corinth, a few words about Corinth. The setting here is, is interesting. Corinth is large. It's one of the larger urban centers at the time. Uh, it's a, at the, an important intersection of a lot of trade routes, sea trade. Um, it's an important intersection for a lot of cultures to, that come together. It was a very diverse city at the time. Um, it hosted what were the equivalent of the Olympic Games at the time, the Ismian Games. Um, had a lot of very wealthy people, but also a lot of very poor people and a lot of very working, what we would consider working class people. A lot of uh, people from different cultures, which we'll even see in the story. And it also had a lot of different religions and philosophies because of all these different cultures that came together in the city. So it's very pluralistic in that way. And what came with that was a lot of well, religious, pluralistic practices. Uh, (laughs) I've heard multiple scholars say that Corinth was essentially the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Um, So what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, I guess. Uh, There were a lot of uh, morally questionable practices that went with a lot of these different religions and philosophies. So anyways, I'm trying to create a little bit of a picture here. Paul travels into this city alone, travels into, quote, Vegas, you want to think of it that way alone because he's been chased out of all these other towns and as we'll see he does about he does the same exact thing he's been doing <laughs> every time um so let's start um, what i'm going to do is i'm going to read the story in sections and comment on it as i go through chris you can leave the map up while i do this so follow along with me in chapter 18 of acts after this paul left athens and went to corinth there he met a jew named aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Pause on that. Here we get a sense of the multicultural nature of the city. A Jewish person from Pontus who left from Italy and is now in Corinth, right? This is just a little slice of the diversity of the city. So picking back up from that, Paul went to see them, this couple, verse three. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. We'll pause here. Paul is a tent maker. He's, he works with his hands. He's uh, like a canvas worker, a leather worker. And so, are the, so is this uh, Jewish couple who's going to become a really important couple in his story, Priscilla and Aquila. You hear a lot about them um, later on. And still, even though he's alone, even though he's been through all these experiences, he still keeps going to the Sabbath, to the synagogue every Sabbath to reason with the Jews and the Greeks that were there. Then verse 5, when uh, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, these are the people that caught up with him, his friends that he left behind. 
When they came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Eustace, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. I'm going to pause and pause here again. A few things to note of what's happening. So again, I've already mentioned, Paul's doing the same exact thing he's been doing. And he's provoking, it says they were abusing him. Like he's provoking abusive reactions from this, this crowd. He's speaking to Jews and to Greeks. He's speaking uh, to Gentiles in this multicultural city. Um, and we see some names. I, th- I think it's almost kind of humorous. I don't know if this was intended to be humorous, but I think it's funny that he has this really outrageous reaction of like, your blood be on your heads. I'm only going to speak to Gentiles. And then a verse later, he converts a Jew and a Jew's entire household. So I'm like, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be funny. I don't know. Uh, but Crispus is the synagogue leader, probably a Jewish uh, family. Titus Eustace is a Roman name. Prob- possibly, we don't know for sure, but probably a person of influence. Um, and then it says many of the Corinthians. Presumably, because of the diverse multicultural nature of the city, that's Jewish people and non-Jewish people, probably some slaves or former slaves, probably other people who worked with their hands like Paul did, because he was working with his hands in the marketplace day in and day out, except for the Sabbath. So he was probably talking to them. And we get these names like Crispus of people of influence, right? So I'm trying to create a picture in your head of this messy, diverse little community that Paul is starting to form in the middle of this bustling, huge urban center uh, like Las Vegas. This is the beginning of the Corinthian church. It's not clean and tidy and nice and neat. And it's fascinating. If you think ahead, if you know the letters to the Corinthians, which I would really encourage you to read, um, maybe with with the sermon in your mind, read the beginning of 1 Corinthians. If you know anything about those letters, Those letters indicate that this church is going to be plagued with divisions for a long time after this, right? They divide along lines of class. Paul Paul gets very upset with them for the wealthy wealthy members of the church eating the Lord's Supper before the non-wealthy members can get off their jobs and come join them. He gets very upset with them about this. These divisions, um, we see this this messy division, uh, multicultural thing happening in the very birth of the church. And so what that says to me, okay, it says a couple of things. It says that we should be a diverse people, right? The nature of the, what we believe about Jesus should be more powerful than earthly divisions, right? So we should, be, we should be with people who are different from us in terms of class and culture and background and ethnicity and all that. But also it tells me that that's not easy, <laughs> right? It's not like Paul came and set up this community and then they had it figured out and they were perfectly unified for the, for the years following. They had to work at this. This is a long, uh, messy, difficult work. It's a long obedience, as Eugene Peterson would say. But I find that interestingly encouraging, actually. But let's keep going in our story. This is the birth of the church. This is the very beginnings of the Corinthian church. And then in this context, picking it up in verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. So Paul's hearing directly from from God in this vision. He says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So, listen to this. Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. We have this 
we have this popular vision of Paul as just like constantly traveling and moving around and moving on to the next thing. This is an easy detail to miss. He stayed for a year and a half. He stayed. We had, we had a glimpse, I think, of Paul's pastoral shepherding heart here. He knew these people. He lived with them for a long time, and he cared for them. And that lends a certain, I think, emotional weight to the letters that he's going to write to them later. Because he knows these people. A year and a half is, is, that's not a short time. But God says to him, there's so much, we could do a whole sermon just on these two verses, I feel like. But God's, this divine assurance from God um, tells Paul to stay, keep speaking, don't be silent, do not be afraid. That presumes that there were things that Paul could have legitimately been afraid of, right? Real temptations to stop speaking, real temptation to stop what he was doing. But, but God encourages him, and as a result of this encouragement, Paul stays in Corinth for a long time. And what I want to get to now, this is really what I want to talk about is this next section, picking up in verse 12. So with this whole background, this messy, diverse, multicultural community being formed, resistance from the local Jewish population especially, this divine word from Paul to stay, then we get this um, interaction here, picking up in verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This is basically a picture of a Jewish mob crowd forming and getting Paul in front of the Roman governor. Gallio is a Roman name. It's the Roman governor. Achaia, as you can see, this is why I like this map. Achaia is kind of the state or the province within which Corinth was a part. So this is like we would consider a governor, like, like a, a governor of a state. Gallio is kind of a governor of the state, uh, the Roman Empire. So they, they parade Paul in front of this governor, Gallio, and they charge, listen to this, uh, verse 13. This is their charge. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. This, this gets at the heart of what I want to talk about this morning. And to summarize the rest of the, this next paragraph, essentially what happens is Gallio, this Roman governor, says, basically says, this is, like, this is a debate you need to settle. Like, this is a Jewish, theological, philosophical, religious thing. I'm not going to enter this judgment as a Roman governor. This is on you. You've got to figure this out. And then the crowd gets so outraged at that response that they turn on the synagogue leader Sosthenes and beat him. It says they beat him violently in front of Gallio. So Sosthenes is different from Crispus. It's a different character. But what I want to bring out here is this kind of, to my question at the beginning, what outrages you? This crowd was so upset at what Paul, Paul, they were so agitated by what Paul was doing that they try to parade him in front of the state to say, you punish him to the governor, right? It'd be like, I don't know, a church, I don't know, rallying up and bringing me in front of the city hall, right? And saying, do something about him, put him in prison or something, you know, that's kind of what they're doing. Not that I'm comparing myself to Paul. That is maybe a little arrogant, but you get the point. Uh, they try to bring it. They try to get Rome to act on their behalf. And when Rome doesn't cooperate, they get violent and they turn on their own synagogue leader and beat him in front of the Roman governor. And Gallio still says, um, it says, it says he showed no concern whatsoever, right? Man, there's so many dynamics happening here, but this crowd is very outraged. And it says that they were outraged. Their allegation was that this man, Paul, is persuading people to worship God in ways 
contrary to the law. I want to talk about this for a minute. And then I want to connect it to what this means for us today, I think. So first, Paul is clearly persuasive, right? Paul wouldn't be getting into all this trouble if he wasn't effective at persuading people, right? If he wasn't actually like compelling people to follow Jesus, they wouldn't bother with him. So he's clearly effective in the way he's communicating. But their agitation is coming from the ways that Paul is declaring freedom from their law, freedom in Christ specifically. He was proclaiming, and we know this from his letters and the rest of the New Testament, we know that he was proclaiming that the law was fulfilled in this man, Jesus, who was crucified and risen again. And we need to remember, this is really important, it's so tempting to read that phrase, the law, and to think of rules, like religious rules, moral rules, and that's part of it. But I want to I remind us that the law for the Jews, the law was more than that. The law was an entire way of being. It was a way of life. It was their culture. It was their, really their identity. It was who they were. They were the people who followed God's law. They were the people that God gave the law to. In the midst of this bustling, urban, multicultural city, they were the, this, the law set them apart, right? It was, it was really uh, how they saw themselves and their identity, their culture, their way of life. This is, this is a big deal. So in other words, to say, <laughs> Paul, for Paul to say, your whole culture, your whole way of life, everything that sets you apart from everyone, all the other pagans around you, that whole thing, that's all been fulfilled in Jesus. And now people who aren't Jews can actually worship your God with you. And they don't need to be Jewish to do it. That's what Paul is telling them. And this provoked in them that outrage to the extent that they tried to get the state to punish him and then beat their own synagogue leader because they were so upset by it. This is a huge, huge deal. And you start to see why Paul keeps getting chased out of town after town after town, right? Because he's, he's hitting on something that's really, really deep. He's telling them that their, their whole way of life had found, had, was pointing to something, and that something has happened in Jesus the Christ. And now God is doing a new thing in the world. Now, I'm like... I'm like touching on an extremely <laughs> complicated theological historical debate here. So if the term supersessionism means anything to you and you like, like studying this stuff, then email me and maybe we can grab a coffee and talk about it. Um, I get that it's complicated. And I get that there's a lot of questions about what does this mean for the Jewish people moving forward and all. I get that. I don't want it, that to get distracting though, because what I want to focus on this morning is how what Paul was saying, the gospel, um, the freedom in Christ, the new thing God is doing in the world, the, the invitation for the Gentiles to worship God without becoming Jewish, how that was so deeply upsetting and offensive to the Jews in Corinth, but how I think we can relate to that same feeling today. When we get outraged by something, I think we're touching on a very, very similar human tendency that we see in this story. So my question for you, with all this in mind, is, and maybe think about how you answered the, the opening question, but do you have a way of life or an identity or a group or something that you grasp onto because it gives you a sense of purpose in the world? Because it gives you a sense of belonging in the world. Humans are very good. We're very, very good at finding an ultimate purpose, a way of life, a cultural identity, a people group. We're very good at finding that stuff. 
and then feeling outraged when that gets threatened, right? We're very good at that. We're very, very good at that. For a lot of people right now, it's, it's, it is political party. Um, that's a temptation for me. Uh, I think for probably more, more often right now, it's actually being against something, right? That's the actual cultural identity you grab onto is that I'm against blank. I'm against the people who charged the Capitol on January 6th, or I'm against uh, people who are woke, or I'm against, uh, I don't know, I'm against people who are against people who are woke. I, you know, like all that stuff, right? We find our purpose in that. And I think that when, here's, here's the point. I'm not trying to say, don't have political opinions. I'm not trying to say, don't have convictions. I'm trying to say, be very wary about how those can seduce you into thinking that's your purpose, right? And a sign that you might be finding an idolatrous purpose in those things is if you get outraged when they get threatened. I think that's a sign. And so it's a, it, if that's happening, it's a sign that you might be finding purpose outside of the gospel, outside of what God has done in Jesus. So the invitation, just like Paul is inviting the Jews in Corinth, the invitation is to instead find your purpose in Jesus. Find your purpose in Christ. Find comfort in that. God is making all things new in Christ, and you can rest in that work, and you can find your purpose in following him, in inviting him, or inviting people to follow him in the world. So in the, in the behavior of this crowd, in this outraged crowd, we can see, I think we see, that being so focused on a threat a threat to your way of life or a threat to your ideas or ideologies or whatever it is, being so focused on that can actually cause you to miss what God is doing, right? They were very truly missing the invitation of the gospel. And really what I I want to end here on is this idea that the gospel, when I say gospel, that's that's a religiously like loaded jargony word. It can be. The gospel, the invitation, the good news that Jesus has died, has risen again, the good news that you can follow him, the good news that you can be part of God's family by following him. That invitation, that good news, when a community is formed by that, when a community responds to that, like the messy community in Corinth, when they come together around that, one way you can tell that the gospel is at work is because it forms communities of love not communities of outrage. When the gospel is really working, when we're gripped by the love and grace of God, the free invitation of God, it produces love. It does not produce threatened outrage. And what I want to end on is this. We have to remember that Paul, and this is why I highlighted that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. He stayed there to tend to the community. And that tending was formed and fueled by love, the perfect love of God. And it's fascinating to me and powerful to me that in the very letter to this community, the Corinthians, in the very letter to them, in the midst, with all this in the backdrop, in that letter is where Paul wrote some of his most moving words on love. So what I want to end on is I want to read some of those words. And I want you to think about this story. Think about everything we talked about. Think about this story. Think about the question I asked you. What, what, 
forms outrage in you? Think about how we could be a community of love in the midst of a culture of outrage today. So I think this is really, really important. I think this is one of the ways that the church has a profound opportunity in our cultural moment. A culture that's so plagued by division and outrage and so ready to pile on, being angry, calling out people. We can be a community of love in the midst of that. But perfect love comes from the Father in Christ and the Holy Spirit amongst us. That is perfect love. And that is love we are invited to purely on grace. And it is a love that, will, that has the power to transform us now so that we can too be loving and inviting communities. So as I read these words, keep this in mind and pray, pray for us. After I read these words, we're going to uh, transition to communion. But my, my deep prayer is that we would be a community that is marked by this love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen. We're called to remember Christ as we come to the communion table. And we've been considering sometimes uh, what we might remember of Christ as we come to this table every week. Uh, Something's been on my heart for us to think about this fourth Sunday of Easter is to remember that we ought not fear death. Uh, The fear of death isn't a new thing. It was born in humanity in Genesis 3. And, uh, but just personally, I observed that the, the, this pandemic we've been in for the last year has brought the fear of death to the fore in a way that I've never seen on a very wide scale. All of us in this room are old enough to know that uh, we will all die. These bodies will not last. Um, but we're not... Um, but we're, we're not to be preoccupied with that or, or focus on it or f- certainly not fearful of it. It's a reality. It's something that we all deal with. And in America, sometimes not as well as we might <laughs> in our ever, never-ending uh, chase to avoid it. Um, we read in John 11 that Christ himself Those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus know that even if we die, yet shall we live. Christ is the resurrection and the life, and she or he who believes in him will never die. Those are pretty wild words. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus became a flesh and blood human like us so that he could die and through death could destroy the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. And this is the part I love. And deliver all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What a glorious blessing, the freedom from the fear of death. It's that 
that freedom from fear of death that for the last 2,000 years has led thousands, tens of thousands of people to lay down their lives for just confessing the name. It's led other tens of thousands of people to enter into the care of people during pandemics, people who had leprosy, people who had all kinds of infectious diseases. Christians would go and care for them at, the, at risk because they did not fear death. And this table reminds us to fear death no longer. Christ is risen. And because of his victory over death, we enter into that victory over death when we trust in him daily. As we um, come to our time of reflection before we come to the table, and I don't know who is here. I know, Doug, you did you get everybody? I mean, everybody has a little cup. Okay, great. Thank you. As we come to this moment where we're going to spend a minute just talking quietly to the Lord, here's some questions you can think about. Um, the ones that I wrote down before I got here this morning were, where have I let the fear of death draw me back into slavery? And Joel's thoughts, slavery to an idea that isn't Christ, <laughs> so slavery to an idea that I got to have in order to make my life make sense. Um, in what ways have I stopped living freely in Christ and his kingdom because I fear death? Uh, I wrote down these, as Joel said, you know, where have I let, have I let outrage overwhelm love in my heart? Have I let self-seeking replace love? So let's just take a minute. You can bring other things to the Lord right now as well, but those were just some thoughts. Let's take a minute and just talk to the Lord quietly as we prepare to take the bread and the cup. I invite you to open your cup if you haven't done that already. If you're new with us, there's two sections to this cup. The top one has a little wafer in it. It opens by itself. And then the bottom one has the, the juice. Just open those. We'll take them together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying. Because you are so alive, you are life itself. You were able to experience the wretchedness of death more fully than any of us ever will. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your resounding victory over death. You are risen indeed. We praise you for putting your risen life into us that we might live in you. As we take this bread and this cup, help us to remember your great victory over death that we might no longer be subject to lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Help us not to live in fear of death, but to live boldly in obedient service to you. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And after they had eaten, he took the cup, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink together. Praise to the living God. Praise to the risen Christ. Amen.